And welcome to History of Networking. Today, we're going to talk about the history of BGP. Joining us to share the details of the protocol that runs the internet is Tony Lee. Tony, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you're up to these days? Hi, I'm Tony Lee. I helped build uh, parts of the internet and helped get BGP deployed in its early days. Um, I've done my time in computer networking and moved on to other things. Um, so let's see, I guess the story with BGP really kind of starts all the way back in the ARPANET and Milnet days. And the, probably the most important part starts off with, uh, the mail bridges, which were the boxes that interconnected the ARPANET and the Milnet. Um, as you may recall, the ARPANET was net 10 and the Milnet was net 14. And if you wanted to send stuff between the two, well, you had to go through the mail bridges. And as a result, the mail bridges had to know about both networks. Now, that was good for two networks, but as we wanted to add more and more networks, the mail bridges needed more routing information. And we needed a mechanism to tell the mail bridges about this. So some folks over at BBN came up with a protocol called Exterior Gateway Protocol. And in particular, this is Eric Rosen's baby. And this was a distance vector protocol. And we started using it for connecting campuses onto the side of the ARPANET. And things got really confusing really, really quickly. So, so Tony, when you say distance vector, people are going to think RIP. Is that close or is it actually what we would really consider a distance vector protocol? I'm just curious because there is a dip. I mean, RIP really isn't. Okay, it is, but it isn't a true distance vector protocol, right? Well, the EGP and RIP are so similar, it's not funny. They, <laughs> they really are pushing around a hop count. Okay. Don't really have a good way of resolving loops. And EGP's updates are so slow that convergence was a major disaster. So loop freedom was a very, very large problem with EGP. We also had some major problems with the implementation of EGP where the mail bridges could actually only support so much stuff. As you might imagine, having one or two or even six routers in the middle of the, the entire internet who were trying to coordinate everything by themselves, that was pretty much grounds for a scalability disaster. And we found those bounds pretty quickly. Yeah. So, so in other words, the internet started out centralized. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> so as we started to, to dismantle the ARPANET and move to the NSFNet, it became very, very obvious that EGP was really not going to cut it. Uh, we were pasting things together by doing redistribution from this protocol into another protocol and everybody doing their own thing, and none of it centrally coordinated. And we started having routing loops all over the place. And pretty quickly, we realized that this is not going to last for very much longer. So Kirk and Yakov sat down. This is Kirk Lahid and Yakov Rector. 
and they should widely be proclaimed as the fathers of BGP. And they sat down one day and decided, here's what we really need. And they sat down with the now famous napkin, sketched <laughs> out what they wanted. And it was a bar, It was at a bar table in Washington D.C. or something like that, right? Is it was it the D.C. I don't remember. It was it was an ITF, right? It was like in, in D.C. or something. I don't remember exactly the. So they sketched out what they wanted and wrote down an RFC and then wrote some code to try it out. And it more or less worked. And after tinkering with it for a little while, they decided, well, there's some features in here that we just don't care about. For example, they had put in a, a notion of a directional topology. There was up and there was down. Yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah, that's kind of what, strange. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, so their thought, you know, the thinking was that the network was going to evolve into a hierarchy, right? Because that's where they were coming from. They had the ARPANET as the master backbone and information would flow up to the ARPANET and then back down. Well, okay, in a generalized graph, that's not going to happen. Yeah. You're going to yeah. have an arbitrary topology. And so they realized that that, re that restriction really wasn't necessary. So they simplified the protocol and took all of that out. And as you see in BGP version two, that's all gone. So, so actually, one of the interesting things I found when I was looking at the RFCs was that in the early, early days of EGP and BGP, the drafts were only months from the RFC. I mean, like... 1163, which obsolete 1107, which 1107 is the first BGP, I think, that I could find, actual BGP um, RFC. Uh, 1163 was drafted in March and then RFC'd in June. Like <laughs> three months later. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> so it was very experimental and nobody was going to argue very much about it because nobody saw it as seriously important. And back in those days, also the RFCs, really still were documents that were living documents open for comments. Right? So they didn't have much more status than an internet draft does today. So they were how, yeah. quickly. Yeah, how things have changed. <laughs> we have ossified. Yes. So, um, so let's see, BGP2 had one bug in it and that's, um, the bug there is pretty simple. If two BGP speakers try to open TCP connections to each other simultaneously, you get confused. And BGP3, all that does in there is to rectify that by adding a router ID and determining which of those two TCP connections to keep open and which to close. Right. So master-slave, basically. Yep. Okay. Okay, so then my part of the story begins in 91 when I joined Cisco and I got to help maintain uh, Cisco's implementation of BGP. Um, in particular, one of the early projects that I did was to actually implement the BGP3 changes to Cisco's uh, code in iOS, classic. And uh, that got pushed out and People were still playing around with BGP, but it really hadn't escaped the lab yet. And 
then the road conferences started happening. Um, this is in 92. And people realized that we had a scalability problem. And we decided to move to CIDR. And then the question is, how do we route CIDR prefixes? Because EGP can't support them at all. Yeah. Actually, it was interesting because in November of 92 is the first draft I could find of BGP4. Um, and by the way, an interesting side effect of BGP3 is, or interesting thing about BGP3 is, I remember when I started Cisco in 96, there were still customers using BGP3 in live in their networks sure. um, on older routers. So BGP3 was around for a very, very long time. Um, people seem to think that things switch very quickly, but in reality... BGP3 was out there for a long time that I could find. Um, but anyway, so the interesting thing I found about BGP4 was the first version I could find is 03. What's the story? I mean, where there's no 01 and 02, or I mean, you just decided to start at three. Is that it, Tony? Or you? Zero <laughs> 01 and 02 out there. <laughs> and there's some horrible mistakes in it, which is why we probably withdrew them. And moved <laughs> Best lost of time, then, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mistakes were made. What can I say? <laughs> uh, so, listen. Um, so, early 91, 92, uh, we spent a lot of time after we decided to move forward with BGP, uh, spent a lot of time trying to get it deployed in the network. Uh, we started by deploying it using a series of tunnels, GRE tunnels and built an overlay for passing around routing information. See, the first routed overlay in the internet. Look at that. <laughs> Lisp version one. No, never mind. <laughs> uh, so we had lots of scalability problems. Uh, this, the Cisco iOS implementation in particular was never structured to support the massive number of routes that we were shoving into it. Um, 5,000, and it would fall over on a regular basis. <laughs> hey, hey, this is... <laughs> and these were risk processors, right? I mean, I remember what, I don't remember what the processors were, but they were like really old 8-bit stuff. Uh, it's not quite that bad. Um, it was uh, running 16 megahertz with no MMU and 4 megabytes of RAM. And that was <laughs> Wow. <laughs> okay. So we ended up playing lots of games to replace all of the internal data structures and change the algorithms so that they would scale. And then um, iOS's internal scheduling is all run to completion. So there had to be some surgery there so that we could actually stop in halfway through a routing table scan. Uh, otherwise, you would just hog the CPU for too long. This is actually before interrupt level switching as well, right? And fast cache. So this is like, like even pre-AGS or is that? No, no, no. This is, this is AGS and there was fast, okay. fast switching at that point. Okay. Uh, but all of the, the fast switching, uh, that fast switching cache was still a host route, a slash 32. Right. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so if you got a cache hit on a prefix, it didn't help anything except the actual destination that you cached. So cache flushes were a nightmare. Yeah. So you had to be very careful and tried not to trigger a cache flush. Um, 
So it was interesting times, and we had to jury rig a lot of things, and it was very messy. Um, so with the adoption of CIDR, um, we decided that we had to move and distribute prefixes. Um, at that point, I, uh, Yakov and I um, produced the BGP4 initial specs. Um, a lot of that was just stolen from stuff that he'd already done for ID, uh, uh, IDRP, um, which is basically BGP translated into ISO. And then we, he brought it all back. And did <laughs> nightmares. Tony's giving me nightmares tonight. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, it had to happen. Um, so Yakov brought all that technology back and that became BGP4. Uh, Paul Trena took over Cisco's implementation and he installed a... A more reasonable routing table that actually looked like a tree rather than a Cisco hash table. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, there were lots of bugs. There was lots of late night fixing. There were lots of times when we crashed the entire internet. And um, it was pretty painful. Um, fortunately, at the time, it was still an experimental network. Nobody was really, really expecting perfect uptime. And so you know, when things went south, we got yelled at, but they didn't kill us. <laughs> cool. So I see that um, 4271, I think it still has your name on the top of it, right? You and Yakov, is that correct? Sure. Which obsoleted 1771. And I see that that started in about 95 and it took until... 2006 to get RFC and the history page on that RFC is pretty incredible. Alex Zenon making all sorts of comments and all these people asking for changes. It was pretty, pretty radical. The amount of stuff that was going on there. Um, if you actually look at the, the, the net change and there were lots and lots of little good change, no question about it, but the fundamentals haven't changed all that much. A lot of the work that was done in 4271 was to help clarify the document because, frankly, we didn't do a wonderful job of producing the very quick document. Um, the Yakov rule of, of building RFCs, of building drafts. If you can actually read it and understand it, it's not written well enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the intent. <laughs> actually, Yakov's rule, if a word is disputed, take it out. <laughs> until you run out of words <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah pretty so, interesting so how much of the rfc's a work that you did was already done and then written then you came back and wrote their rfc or what, which way was it well so again yakov had taken bgp and roughly about B bgp3 and taken that to iso and because the nsap addresses are variable length it had to resolve all the interesting issues about doing a longest prefix match in IDPR or IDRP. And so all of that information was pretty well known. Um, so when he brought that back, that actually preceded the coding. And so we just had to lift the stuff that he had decided. We, we did bash it around a bit to make sure that we wanted it to operate in the way it did. Um, and, and then put it down in the RFC and coded to that. Um, there were, I, can, I can tell you one of the more interesting things. Um, we spent a lot of time 
uh, adding stuff to support de-aggregation. And we were very concerned that we were going to have a lot of people trying to interrupt between BGP and EGP. And so we tried to make it work when you wanted to take all the class less prefixes out of BGP, de-aggregate them into class full prefixes and shove those into EGP. Um, as it turns out, nobody actually used that feature. So that was a lot of work for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reminds me of EIGOP auto, auto summarization, right? On classful boundaries. And yep. then immediately everybody turns it off because I've never seen any edge European network with it actually enabled. <laughs> it's like, why would you do that? <laughs> well, wasn't that, a, I mean, we're, we're diverging in the edge. That was a mistake based on a, a code, mistake that we should have turned it on by default. And we didn't. Right. No, it was actually on by default. Yeah. And you had to turn, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We should have but left it off by default. Yeah. yeah and everybody just turned it off. off. Yeah. So it's just one of those things, you know, it's another instance of that. You really think this is going to be important. You spend a lot of time coding it, thinking through how to solve it. And in the end, when you actually get it in the field, it just really doesn't matter. Nobody cares. It's like, whatever. So we were very concerned because we could see that if we didn't do it and needed it, we would be in a world of hurt. And right. Running and trying to do this under the gun. And that would have been really, really ugly. So in terms of an insurance policy, it wasn't a bad thing. Yeah. It would have been nice to know we weren't going to need it, but that's Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I noticed that the early drafts were posted in the IWG working group. I don't remember the IWG working group ever existing. So like when did the IWG to IDR thing happen? Do you remember? Was that like in the 90s or was that earlier? Uh, that was earlier. Um, I don't don't remember when that got changed. Yeah, it's kind of weird because I just looked at the original drafts and they were like in this internet routing working group or internet working group or something like that, IWG. And then, you know, now clearly everything in BGP now is done in interdomain routing, which is IDR. And I was just mm -hmm. trying to figure out like, you know, what, what, did, what happened there? That's kind of weird. I think that's but, so you said you had BGP2. What happened to BGP2? I mean, why'd you go from two to three? You described three to four as a TCP open change, but what well, happened in there? The TCP open change was two to three. Two to three. So three to four was variable length encoding for CIDR. That's right. And they're incompatible. So that was a big change. Right. So did AFI's address families didn't come in until much later because of MPLS traffic engineering, right? That's right. Okay. But we so... Put AIs into four because uh, they were necessary inside of IDRP, and Yakov just brought them over and swore to us that we would need them, and he was right. Yeah, yeah. So AFIs were, were a part, address families were a part of IDRP, and you just brought them into BGP four. Okay, I guess that would make sense for IDRP because, well, why? I mean, why would you have them? Because you have all you have is ISO addresses and ISO. Well, maybe X25, is that, was that the thing? I don't know why you would, Well, it would it, be a concern. It was pretty obvious, at least as a Cisco employee, that having multi-protocol routing, routing protocols was a good thing. Yeah. Um, we already could do that with ISIS. We had multiple implementations of IGRP for, for XNS and for IP and for CLNS. We knew we were going to need that. 
And it made sense that we tried to make BGP more generic and so support multiple address families. Yeah, so address families came in. That's kind of cool. Okay. So any thoughts on what's happened since then? I mean, there's all these update RFCs. (laughs) Well, uh, as we were saying uh, prior to starting the recording, um, BGP has become something of a dump truck. (laughs) It works, so we throw it all in there. People want to move information through the routing plane, they shove it into BGP. And <laughs> it doesn't really belong there. And our grandchildren will hate us for doing that. <laughs> Tony has no opinions, by the way, Vaughn. <laughs> no. <clears throat> so is any other like, were you going to ask something, Donald? No, you were about to ask the same question. So go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to ask, like, if there were any interesting stories around, like, working with Yakov or anything like that. Because Yakov is gone, gone. I mean, I can't even find his email address anymore. Oh, he's still around. I still hear from him. <laughs> so, I mean, any interesting stories about, like, you know, I know that when Scudder came in to Cisco, he was doing an implementation that, that was from, what was that little company? I can't remember. Um, no. Yeah, and then there was that, yeah, that was that whole thing around um, calculating up to med and after med that he had done this whole mathematical thing around that never seemed to get implemented for XR type of stuff. So when Yakov came in, um, let's see, one of the first things he got put on was to talk about tag switching, which had come from Ypsilon at the time, and certain people within Cisco saw that as a serious threat. And so Yakov started to poke around with that and try to understand it and then started talking to many service providers and that ended up becoming MPLS. And out of that quickly grew 2547 VPNs. Right. Yeah, I remember, I remember the early tag switching images that we could run in the lab on 7200s. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Because you saw it to software switch, there was no hardware platform support for MPLS for tag switching at that time. So you had to software switch everything. So you couldn't do it like on some of the SSEs and stuff like that. You had to do it in software. So, you know, you ran it on like a 4500, whatever that high speed 4500 was in the 7200 and the 7200 BXR later mm-hmm. um, to get enough switching speed out of iOS to make it work. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. So, yeah. Anyway, so that's cool. So any thoughts on implementation that was interesting? I mean, when you went through implementing it, I know BGP, most BGP, BGP implementations today have a kind of a common way that they suck, uh, they suck updates in. They disperse them into a set of linked lists, doubly linked linked lists and things like that. Is that something you originally started way back when you were working on BGP version four with Yakov? Is that like the way you solved some of these problems or is that... Oh, no, that, that came much later. Um, so the, the structure that I started with um, that was kind of handed to me as part of BGP version 2 um, was a hash table. And every route update had a version number. And the way you made forward progress to generate updates was to scan this internal rib and figure out what, what updates were greater than the last version number you sent out. And this course became interesting when the updates became very large and you ran out of TCP buffer space or you ran out of CPU time before you had to move on and do something else. 
So many of the hacks that I ended up doing were to figure out how to stop halfway through one of these scans and save state, save enough state that you could resume and still generate correct information. So that's the origin of BGP Scanner, which is the famous process that everyone who runs BGP hates. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> if you want to generate updates, that's how it happens. <laughs> So it was interesting that it was a hash table. And of course, over time, that became unten or not tenable because the routing table grew from 5,000 routes, right? I mean, you could say 5,000 routes I mean, forever. I, when I started at 5,000, I worked it all the way up to about 12,000. That was just natural growth at the time. And now, you know, requirements have passed 5 million. So it, yeah. it had to change. It had to become more scalable. And the tree and linkless solutions... And what other folks now call the transmission list are now de facto standards. Yeah. So was update packing originally designed into BGP4? Is that was something that was thought of at that time, or is that a later optimization that came in? Um, that was an optimization that we found very quickly while we were doing things. Um, the storage requirements for all of the path attributes were very large. And so one of the things that I, I did in the early PGP implementation was to install a cache of sets of path attributes. And as soon as you have that cache, then update packing becomes much simpler. Yeah. You make sure that the set of path attributes matches the cache entry that you're using for this prefix. And if so, you can aggregate and add this prefix onto that bucket. Uh, so it's a relatively straightforward thing to do. And it was a huge, huge savings on memory, which was a really big concern at the time. Yeah. And, and over time, of course, that, that cache became a linked list of its own or a doubly linked list or whatever. Um, you know, we had Daniel on talking about the optimizations he did to BGP and how, you know, he changed it from a single to a double linked list and this type of stuff to make it actually... Um, to get packing to be more effective because of course, over time as providers figure these things called communities out, they start using them. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> and then packing goes away because because right. now all of your attributes are different again. <laughs> right. So you have to be very careful about what you actually do if you want to pack them. Yeah. And not packing has some implications for your bandwidth and your scanner. Yeah. So interaction with TCP, was there stuff there that you had to do? I don't remember that there were any changes to TCP specifically, but I remember there were bits put in the code at various points to push, you know, like say, okay, I'm done now. Go ahead and send this segment. Was that done back then or is that something that was later? Uh, that was very old. Um, you know, we actually tried to uh, create, rather than just use it as a pure uh, byte stream, we actually tried to construct updates that were near near correct segment sizes, uh, so that we would actually be reasonably efficient by using TCP buffers. Um, the other big change that we actually did, of course, was the MD5, um, because getting security underneath us was key to avoiding the reset hacks. Uh, was that common in the old days? Oh yeah, resets were happening all the time. So we had to do that MD5, and that happened in a real hurry. <laughs> well, I'm pretty. I'm amazed by that. I mean, were people doing like multi-hop 
we said hacks. Is that what they were doing? Because that's kind of strange. Wow. And, the original DDoS. Not really a DDoS, the original DOS. <laughs> you know, I can't help but wonder, I, I don't know if any perps that were actually caught, but I can't help wonder how many ISPs were attacking other ISPs. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. I remember in the early days, there was this thing about, you know, sending more specifics because you could capture more traffic, which would push people to actually upgrade your link instead of your competitor's link when people right. first started dual homing, you know, that kind of thing. Automa you know, like intentionally de-aggregating because you wanted to capture more traffic to use up the links type of thing. That was th Those kinds of things were pretty strange, you know, that type of stuff that was going on. So, yeah. Cool. So I don't have any other questions really at this point. I'm kind of like. <laughs> well, I, I, I just was wondering if as you were developing BGP, did you have any concept of the scale of the protocol? Like what, what eventually it, it would be? I mean, because it, it's everywhere. Uh, I wasn't worried about the scale. Uh, I was trying to make it till next week. <laughs> here, here. A strategy I can understand. <laughs> uh, but we it is pretty we were you know we watched the the uh, routing table growth and that you may recall back 20 Bates was publishing weekly reports and we we were watching it we were watching the plots go exponential and, and we could see bad things happening and you know there was a lot of worry at that time um, and frankly you know we haven't really done anything to fix that we could easily see strange things happen with IPv6. Um, so, you know, millions and millions of prefixes are going to happen. And yeah. that's a really big concern. It's actually not just that there's millions and millions of prefixes. It's that at some point you get large enough that it never converges. Just like today, it never converges. Because if you have, you know, 5 million prefixes, the odds of at least one of them flapping any given tenth of a second is very, very high, you know, it's the old MTBF. And if you get a large enough pool, the law of large numbers takes over and, you know, you're going to have continuous flaps. So um, how does that impact just rate of updates and things like that becomes a very major problem. It is going to be a situation where you have continual flap and that's most of it due to just normal link failure. Right. Yeah. The number of fibers that we have in the internet right now and the failure rate of those fibers you're absolutely right. The law of large numbers is going to kill you. So we have to accept that flap and we have to engineer for it and we have to be ready for it. Right? Yeah. Here's what the background churn rate is going to be. And oh, by the way, if you have a really major event, you're going to spike well above that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that that's come up a couple of times. There was a whole knee in the fib thing that went on with the cost of memory and the fast cash and the Ceph table there for a while. And, you know, I don't even want to talk about fast cash. I was intact when fast cash died and it was just ugly. It was really ugly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, you still see that today, right? I mean, you still have, um, or you still, you, you still see things like this going on. You wonder, like we went through this whole thing with the cost of memory and having to re-optimize tables because things were just getting too expensive. The, the, the cash table, you know, the memory to hold the cash was getting too expensive. Uh, you may remember that, Tony, that we went through that whole thing, right? And right. Um, 
that big meeting in Washington or wherever it was. And we had all that discussion around it. And, and, uh, but anyway, and you just wonder, it's going to happen again. It's got to happen again at some point. And we have put in place no mechanisms anywhere that constrain the size of the global routing table. Right. Yeah. I mean, Daniel did all that work, you know, doing scripts and stuff to find out how much you could auto aggregate. None of that's ever been deployed anywhere. As far as I know, even something as simple as auto aggregation would be very helpful. You know, Jeff Houston does a thing. I don't know if you've seen that chart where he goes out and he talks about, he did a research paper or somebody did a research paper talking about the number of slash 24s in the V4 space that don't do anything. I mean, they literally, they don't make any difference in the routing of traffic. And yet they're still out there and they still flap. And it's just useless state that's doing nothing. It's costing us CPU cycles and memory. So Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And if there's ever, like you said, a tremor or something else that happens, boom, you know, it's going to blow up in our faces. But, well... Now Yvonne's going to say, we've just scared the audience to death. They're all going to be sitting there. Good. Maybe they'll do something. <laughs> Doomsday, BGP style. <laughs> they'll make a movie about it. So, yeah. um, right. so, so if you had a choice to go back and do something different, what would you do? Hmm. Um, I would convince people that the way they were doing IPv6 was the wrong way. (laughs) Oh, we should do a show on that, Yvonne. (laughs) IPv6 is an engineering lesson in bad engineering design. (laughs) Well, um, um, tell me more. (laughs) So, as you probably know, the IPv6 routing architecture is exactly the same as the IPv4 routing architecture, Xeroxed and quadrupled in size. <laughs> and again, we've done nothing to constrain the way that people inject routes. Um, you know, we can play the same deaggregation games. And oh, by the way, we've got a whole lot more bits to play with, so we can do a whole lot more deaggregation than we used to do. Yeah. So, yeah. The problem for me with deaggregation is this: it's 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 a tragedy of the commons, right? Mm-hmm. I don't. I gain by deaggregating because I actually control my traffic inbound better. Because MED is pretty much useless in BGP. I mean, nobody even pays attention to MED, so whatever. So the only real hammer you have is the big hammer of deaggregation. So everybody uses the big hammer to do tra- traffic engineering, but. I gain from it. I actually gain financially from deaggregation, but it doesn't cost, it costs everybody else. I'm using, I'm getting that gain at the cost of everyone else's memory and processing power. So, you know, I'm gaining and I'm putting the cost on somebody else. What's not to like? (laughs) And the same is also true for multi-homing. Yep. In the multi-home site, I end up with multiple prefixes. I inject them. I get a benefit because now I've got robust connectivity and everybody else has to pay for my additional state. This is economically broken. Yeah, that's right. So it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult problem to solve. And I don't know that there's the political will in any place to do anything about it until the thing falls apart. (laughs) It's sad to say it, but I think that there cannot be any motivation to fix it until there actually is a crisis. 
Yeah, uh, probably true. Unfortunately true of human design throughout. And this is just the way politics works. You don't fix things until they're near implosion. And this, you know, this is true for social security. This is true for Medicare. This is true for... <laughs> for BGP. <Uh-oh. laughs> so, so were you involved in the original XR implementations or was that all Scudder stuff? I was not. Uh, I left to go off to Juniper by then. Um, the original implementation was something called DNA, and, and it did start while I was there, but I was not involved in it because I was still busy fixing other things. And okay. uh, then that eventually got renamed into XR and has slowly evolved. And at least as of 2013, actually worked reasonably well. So did you actually do much of the same work at Juniper? Were you doing BGP at Juniper or were you doing something different? No, I ended up uh, doing uh, Juniper's first ISIS implementation. Oh, it's your fault. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just sitting here trolling through 10589 to write a, a statement of work. And uh, I was thinking, you know, I just so dislike 10589. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> 10589 is probably... Which is ISIS, not BGP. Yes, we... Right. <laughs> That's probably the best protocol spec that's ever been written. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Fighting <Wow>. words. <laughs> so, so can we summarize by saying be a, be a good internet citizen and summarize your routes? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right, guys, I think this has been a great conversation. We're, uh, we're going to start including, um, we'll include some details, some links to the RFCs in the show notes, but we really want to thank Tony for coming on and joining us. And, and a picture of the this. napkin, a picture of the okay. napkin. I, I didn't know if the napkin was like for public consumption or not. But, um, yes. We can absolutely share a picture of the napkin. You know, I don't know who owns the rights to that thing. You know, I don't want to end up in a lawsuit. It's an open napkin. (laughs) It's an open napkin. Open source napkin, yeah. Got it. You wipe your hands with it at Cisco still, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks a lot. I think we'll wrap up this show. But again, we want to thank Tony for joining us and, uh, Uh, Come back soon for more history of networking. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me.